Well, good morning, church. Would you open your copy of God's Word to James chapter 4? We're finishing up. Some of you are going to be a little alarmed by this, that we only have one chapter left and I think two more messages. I know it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. Turn to your neighbor and say it's hard to believe. So if you haven't been with us, I love the fact that we get to go verse by verse through a book because we're, we're covering topics that we would just never discuss. We would never talk about. Can, can we have a moment of honesty? There are portions of certain books that I just I would never choose to to preach because they're just it's it's uncomfortable it's hard they're difficult right they're not as chipper not as happy not as exciting and that's why I love expository preaching that we we get to go through a book and we get to go from beginning to end all the way through and we just say what God says right do we apologize for that. God, I know you said that, but it's hard to hear. It doesn't fit in our cultural norms, so uh, we're, we're going to skip over that. Do we skip over anything in God's Word? No. Like, we would never do that. So if you are a guest with us, welcome. We have an opportunity to grab our bulletins, open our Bibles, to be able to do this together. And I know that uh, a book like James, for some of us over this, this summer, has been uh, hard-hitting. I love hearing stories of how God is using His Word to be able to impact your life and decision-making and thinking about your future. And today, I got a question for you. Uh, is, it, is it bad to plan? Yes or no? Bad to plan? Is planning a good thing? Good thing. Is it, is it, is it bad to have big dreams and to think long-term vision for, for your life, goals that you have for your kids, for your grandkids, for your family members? Is, is that bad? No. Well, James is going to tell us today, planning, organizing, vision casting, that is to be human. That is to live out the reflection of God's character. The only problem is, James is going to tell us, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so only as far as we are uh, able to say with James and really with the Lord God, May your will be done, if it be your will. And some of us have, have grown up maybe in families where, where we've had parents or grandparents or auntie so-and-so that would tag on at the end of, well, we're planning next year, Lord willing. Have you heard that before? Did you, did you grow up with that? Lord willing, Lord willing. Do you know where they got that from? <laughs> yep, right here, James, James, right. James chapter four, it's right here, it's right here. It's in the Bible. It's a biblical concept. To be able to step back and ask the question, if the Lord wills, we will see if we get there, if, if it's executed that way, if we're going to live that out. But do you live in such a way that you have a lifestyle, not of cute Christian cliches that you tag on the end of your, your statements, but you live a lifestyle with a, a mindset, a mindset that I would really like, but God, whatever you want. Uh, next year, I'd love to be in a different place, right? Financially, a different different place professionally. I'd love for us to be in a different place, whether house, car, whatever, whatever your plans, your budgeting, whatever types of pursuits. I'd like to start a business. I'd like to transition careers. I would, I would like to use my retirement in a different way than before. And over the next few years, I would like to make some changes, Lord willing. Lord willing, a mindset of I'm going to pursue and then I'm going to surrender. James is calling us to a radically different mindset, not just to say the right words, Lord willing, 
Lord willing, but to actually live wholeheartedly, I have no idea what tomorrow brings. That's how I'm going to plan. That's how I'm going to see my future. That's what I'm thinking about my life, right? Surrendered to King Jesus. So we have a few, a few warnings, if you will, and we're going to be going through six dangers of, here's the word, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Does that sound familiar? Uh, almost as a virtue in Western culture is uh, become self-sufficient. You don't want to be a drag on society. You don't want to be a leech on your family. You got to be self-sufficient. You got to be independent. Are those wrong things in and of themselves? To want to work hard, to be able to be at a place that you are not taking, 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 but that you are able to give, be able to have a, a life that is sustainable in a way that you can be generous. But the issue is not self-sufficiency in itself. The issue is when God is removed from the equation and that if we get into deep, deep water, maybe we'll call on God. But in the meantime, God, bless my plans, bless my thing, and we got a problem. Everybody say that's a problem. Because confessional Christians can turn into practical atheists very quickly. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even going to church over and over that we can live like atheists even though we attend church? Practically, when we leave here, that we can live in such a way that does not look any different than those that hate God, running from God, or at least ignoring him at best. So what does James have to say? James chapter 4, verse 13. Everybody there? Verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. We'll spend a year there. We'll trade. We'll make profit, right? Words said with such self-assurance, such authority. And here, if you're taking notes, What's the, what's the danger there? Well, here's what James is saying. Danger number one of self-sufficiency, it puts me in the center of my universe. It puts me in the center of my universe. That is the, the inertia of sin is that it pushes me towards the central place. How long does it take before uh, we see little children coming into a home that somehow without even being taught, they gravitate towards what position in any given room, in any given family, they are smack dab where? Right in the middle. I am the boss. I rule. My voice can get louder than everybody else's. My wants trump your wants. Self-sufficiency puts me at the center of my universe. Here, here's a question. Wasn't that the temptation of Adam and Eve? Did God really say that you can't do something? And I thought he was good, and I thought you had freedom. I thought you had freedom. Wasn't the battle in the very beginning one of, you're right, I don't need him to tell me what to do. I'm very capable of making my own decisions. Thank you very much. Self-sufficiency at the beginning, in the garden, that's way back. Uh, I, I don't know when the last time you've been to a kid's birthday party, but I just, I thought this was, thought this was pretty incredible. I don't know if, if some of you are or going to kids or grandkids parties, relatives parties, but there's, there's something pretty fabulous about going all out, right, and having all the decorations, be able to bring out the monster cake, light it up, the special moment, everybody's singing. And why is it that on occasion, just occasionally, you have Billy, who is just a spectator in this whole thing, 
And Billy kind of has an urge of, I want it to be my birthday. I want to be the one at the head of the table blowing out those candles. I think those presents should be for who? For, for, for me. And it's not uncommon for one of the, the kids to actually get up, relocate themselves, and even during the time of you know, the singing is ending, for that child to uh, kind of push the birthday boy or the birthday girl over and be like, uh, no, I'm doing it, right? And then it's time to open up gifts. And sometimes there's a temptation of, Billy, those aren't your presents. Billy, why did you just open that? Billy, why did you take the t-ball set outside and you're playing with it and it's not even your party? Because that's what we do. As funny, maybe not funny, to watch or videotape or recall and replay some of those moments, it can be cute and funny when they're five. What happens when we have an entire globe filled with adults that continue to live that exact same way, right? Uh, I should have it. It should be mine. I need that to be happy. I want someone to celebrate me. I don't want to participate in somebody else's celebration. Here's the bottom line. You were created to celebrate the glory of another. And that is your not just rightful place, but that's the place of greatest joy is when you actually get out of the center and you exalt and lift high Jesus alone because who's the only one worthy of the celebration? Who's the only one that it's always his birthday, it's always his cake, it's always his presence. He's worthy of us worshiping and focusing on him. But what does he do with all that he has? He gives it away, right? The only one that we were made to worship, we steal glory from. We think we're the center. We are at the center. And here's the issue. This is our life apart from God. Always demanding, always expecting, never satisfied. But we were made for this. I, I don't know if you, if, you're, if you miss anything else, write anything else down. I would write this. This is our purpose statement. I exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Can we say that together? I exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. One more time, just because I, I feel like you're just getting warmed up. It's okay, it's okay. One more time. I exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So the next time somebody says, like, why do you exist? And I don't even know why I'm here. I don't have a purpose in my life. As believers, followers of Jesus Christ, you know what, where we get to go? We get to go with great boldness directly to this topic and say with confidence, I know exactly why I'm here. I know exactly why I exist. I'm not searching around. I'm not shopping around. I'm not questioning it. I don't have an identity crisis going on. I know exactly who I am, and I know exactly why I'm here. Do you know that Christians, only Christians, can say that? Only Christians can have confidence that they know because their creator let them know why they were created. All else are still trying to figure it out. From the beginning, we knew this, that we exist to glorify God. That's why we were created. I don't know the last time you had a conversation with a little one, with a student, maybe with somebody as a young adult. We got some that are entering into adult years, teenage years, adult years, entering into the question of who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? 
how awesome is it that we can get that settled? That we can just be, we can be settled on that topic. I know why I exist. I know my purpose. I exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I know it. I'm not looking anywhere else. I have it. I have my mission statement. So awesome. Everybody say that's so awesome. To know that, to be settled on that. The only problem is what? You must resign from your job of playing God and allow him to assume his rightful position. And nobody wants to get off the throne, right? And Jesus doesn't do sharesies. He doesn't do double buckle, right? His rightful position, and it belongs to him. Jesus is God. I am not, and that's gloriously good news. So number one, it puts me right at the center of my universe when, when I have a mindset in a pursuit of self-sufficiency. Let's read verse 13 again. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make profit. Well, here's danger number two of self-sufficiency. It subtly hijacks the purposes and pleasures of my pursuits. It subtly hijacks the purposes and pleasures of my pursuits. Because it's not wrong, hear, hear me say this, it's not wrong to want to be successful, to have things, to make a profit, to accumulate cars, houses. With spouses, you're limited to one. Sorry, you can move to Utah if you got questions, all right? Um, kids, yes. Grandkids, love it. Retirement, how about the next big thing that we're looking forward to saving up for? It's not wrong, but hear this, it's wrong to have your life shaped and directed by those things. It's wrong to have your heart ruled by those things. And one of the most aggressive and relentless temptations in the American church, I think we can be honest, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 500 years from now, Lord willing, right? If there is still a world here that looks this way, if there's still a fallen people in need of Jesus hundreds of years from now, if the church is still, still going, I wonder if they look back at our culture, at this era, and are going to be mortified by the fact of, so the church was okay with babies just being slaughtered and murdered? What did they do about it? Nothing. And I wonder if the second thing is going to be the church was obsessed with stuff more than they were obsessed with Jesus. They were more obsessed with their, their degrees and their vocations and their accumulations of material wealth and possessions. It didn't look like they really trusted God during that time. It looked like they were kind of trusting in, in themselves. Not Jehovah Jireh, but Jehovah Visa or Jehovah MasterCard, right? Like it Something went wrong during a few decades of the history of the church. I wonder if the future church would look back on us and wonder, what was that all about? Kind of in the same way that we can say, what, what happened 150 years ago? What was the deal with the church saying that like slavery wasn't just okay, but like pastors were working their slaves while he was preaching? And today we're like, we're mortified by that. And I wonder what the future church is going to be mortified when they look at, when they look at us, right? Danger, danger. Everybody say danger. danger. There is a danger to, to heed. There is something to grab onto here. Say, get us out. Get us out of here. John Piper says this, uh, pastor and 
uh, director of Desiring God. If you want to uh, go online to Desiring God on YouTube, subscribe to podcasts. Uh, John Piper has been uh, a mentor from a distance uh, for me. He says this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God, it's not poison, it's apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime drivel of triviality that we drink in every night. I don't know if he wrote this before binge-watching on on Netflix uh, or Amazon Prime, but for all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen and a wife, the greatest adversary of the love of God. It's not his enemies, but his gifts. The most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these things replace an appetite for him, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable. And because of that, almost incurable. Those are some powerful words. Huh? So what if, what if the danger around us isn't the obvious and evident danger? What if it's not the big stuff? What if it's the little stuff? What if the danger isn't uh, going to the gallows? What if the danger is torture of a million paper cuts and the slow death? And we don't even see it. We don't even see it. Number, number one, we have, it, it puts me at the center, right? Danger of self-sufficiency. James is warning us, be careful, be careful. It subtly hijacks the purposes and pleasures of my pursuits. And danger number three of self-sufficiency, it denies God's mystery. It denies God's mystery. Verse 14 you do not know what, what tomorrow will bring. You have no idea what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. And how much of your life is a mystery to you? I, I just thought about this. Just, I don't, I don't know if you ever sit back and evaluate, like, how long has that been? Was that three years ago or five or 10? Anybody been there? When, like, some kind of memory or some kind of, when did we take that trip? When did we buy that thing? When did that happen? And you start pausing and you're like, that much has happened in the past two and a half years? I mean, you think about 2020, right? There is a before and after. And we're looking at something that is so catastrophic, right? That is so global in impact. And we think to ourselves, what were you planning two and a half years ago? Right? What were you planning three years ago? That you're like, well, I know how the past five years has been. And so my game plan, my five-year plan moving forward to, to get out of debt or to develop the, the career or to make a change or to start working on whatever projects. Isn't it alarming that two and a half years ago, you had thoughts <laughs> of great grandeur of how hopeful and optimistic the future was going to be and the things you were going to accomplish and the places you would go. Did, did something stop that? Something prevent that from happening? I mean, you think about, you don't know what tomorrow brings. That's an understatement. In our day, our whole lives in a matter of weeks can change years, right? 
and in fact changed decades. We don't know. We have no idea. The mystery, <clears throat> the mystery of an unknown future. What does it do? I, I wrote this down. The mystery of an unknown future drives me to a known God. Is that what he's doing for you? The mystery of an unknown future is it driving you to a known God, a God that has revealed himself, that, that he's speaking? And even though I have no idea what's going to happen and I don't know how this is going to play out and there's so many unknowns, I love this. It drives me to a known God. You can know God's heart for you even when you can't trust your own. Even when you can't trust your own. So God is everywhere. What do we call that? Omni present, omnipresent, right? God knows everything. What is it? That he's omniscient, okay? We know that God is all good. Everybody say, he's all good. He's all good. I don't know if you know this omni, okay? Omnibenevolent, right? Benevolence, right? Goodness. Think about this. We serve a God who is all-knowing. He's everywhere, and he is all good. And so the things that you don't know about your future, the things you don't know about the plans that you're even making today, you can place the hope and the trust that you are tempted to place in your plans, your ways, your timing into a God that knows everything, that is everywhere, and he's good. He's good. Everybody say that's good news. That's such good news. Only when you rest in Jesus can you live in the midst of the mystery and still be at rest. If you want to jot down this address, Philippians 4.7. Philippians 4.7, love it. The peace of God, which surpasses all, everybody say all, surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Where does that peace come from? Does that peace come from knowing the future? Knowing that your plans are going to be a success? knowing that you have your five-year, 10-year plan laid out and that you know exactly how you're going to work out your system, your way. Is that where peace comes from? There's, there, there's no peace in placing your hope there, but in our God, do you know what he brings? Supernatural peace, supernatural peace. James tells us that those who live a self-sufficient life will never know this peace, will never know this peace. How about this? Number four, danger of self-sufficiency. It forgets eternity. It forgets eternity. It denies God's mystery, and it forgets eternity. It forgets eternity. I, I don't know about you, but it has never been easier to go through a week or a month, and depending on what stage of life we're in, right? It's never been easier to, to go through long periods of time and not even have one thought about eternity. There is so much happening. There is so much busyness. There is so much on our calendars, right? We are moving at such a pace that we don't even have time to slow down and think about, wait a minute, this is just for a moment and then forever. I don't know when the last time you've dwelled on eternity, eternity. What, is, what does he say? Verse 14, what's your life? What's your life? All right, James, he's getting a little, he's getting a little saucy. What, what's your life really, Mr. Planner, Miss Planner, Miss Big Dreams, right? Miss, Mr. Ambitious, what's, what's your life really? For you're just a mist. 
You're just a vapor that appears for a time and then vanishes. Only now, only now I think about only my comfort, my way, my power, control, affluence, pleasure. And James is so burdened for the church, right? He's, think about this. He's writing to the early church 2,000 years ago. How much worldly pleasures and temptations were, were they really absorbed in? Didn't, didn't seem like there was a whole lot going on, but James is like, even as a young church, the temptation is so strong to forget that your life is so short. Uh, I, I don't know if James was facing uh, the Roman Empire was popularizing YOLO before we ever got on the scene. And today's the day, right? You do you. We've been doing that for a really, really long time. This isn't anything new. And he says this, God's, God's way of approaching life is to live every day for forever, with forever in view. And the question is, are you? Do you find yourself asking questions, before I make this decision, how long is this really going to last? Is this really worth it? In light of eternity, I mean, think about that. What if you, before every click, before every purchase, before every big decision, every time that you came together as a family, as a couple, or just individually, you have to make decisions. What if you pause and just said, what difference does eternity make with this decision? What impact is this going to have? How is this going to advance a cause that's greater than me, that's going to outlive me? Is this really worth it with eternity in view. Do you think that would change things? Do you think that would change what we value, how we view people, our future? Because it's a vapor. It's a vapor. Everybody say it's a vapor. That's our life. That's our life. A vaporous life. So the danger is not in the big, nasty, sinful, obvious stuff. The danger is thinking we have more time. We have more time. We have more time. I will accomplish more and more and more and we don't know how long we have. If life is a vapor, everybody say, and it is, and we want to live a full, meaningful life, everybody say, and we do, I hope that's true, right? Then we need to change our approach. Write this down. Your life is frail and short. Death is certain and soon. Why does James need to remind us of these things? Because nobody around us is constantly reminding us life is short. Life is short. You don't have a lot of time left. I think everything is screaming, I have more time. I'll, I'll make up for this later. I'm, I'm looking at my long-term plans, and we don't, we don't even know. How about this? Danger number five, self-sufficiency. It fails to live submissively. Here we go again. If, you, if you've been around the past few weeks, James has been pretty fired up about this theme of submission, submission. For some of us, we grew up in like submission is like a dirty word, right? Like we, we, we don't say the S word, right? So we can cuss, but we don't say submission, right? Submission being a bad word. In God's economy, submitting to our God is such a glorious thing. When we finally 
surrendered him come come under his lordship is that not the definition of being a christian is that i used to submit to no one nobody's going to tell me what to do have you been there have you been there I don't go on social media a whole lot, so if like you send me anything or you expect me to like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not on there um, a whole lot. But when I am, I can just very quickly scan through my feed once a week and look at a couple things. And it seems like there is a very clear mantra, and it's not just from those that hate God. It's, I think, well-meaning Christians that are fighting whatever political battles or whatever else but definitely the mantra of like, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And I wonder how deep does that go that if I won't submit under any human authority, what does that tell me about my lifestyle of submitting under God's authority? It might be telling, telling a tale, but here's the deal. The danger of self-sufficiency, it fails to live submissively. Verse 15, do you got it? Verse 15, instead you ought to say, okay, So if I'm not supposed to say, here's all my plans, this is what's going to happen, I'm super confident, this is the way it's going to go, this is my best life now, James says, instead, everybody say instead, instead, here we have a a contrast, we have a, a, a contrast of thought, here's what we are to do, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, everybody say, there it is, you got it, you got it, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, Lord willing, if the Lord wills. It's right there. It's right there. Not as a Christian cliche, but instead as a heartfelt pursuit of submitting to God's will. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So Pastor James here is, he's summoning God's people to live a a life shaped by awareness of his sovereignty, not my own, not my own. Turn to everyone and say, not yours, not your sovereignty, not your sufficiency, you're not the boss, right? This is the time that wives can turn to husbands and say, you're not the boss. Jesus is the boss, okay? You're second. But we, we have the ability to turn away from, I'm in control. I can do it. God has placed me here with a purpose to do his will, not my own. The Christian life is shaped by a practical, heartfelt submission to the will of God. I, lo- I love it. The abundant Christian life. Anybody in favor of the abundant Christian life? I don't, I don't know if you, you know John 10.10. 10. So John 10.10 10 was the first verse that I ever memorized, okay? I was sitting in a jail cell, opening up my Bible, brand new Christian, and now wondering if I'm ever going to see the light of day again. But for sure, I was going to see God's word all day long. I opened to John 10.10, 10, and I was challenged with this. The enemy comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I'm like, that's my story. That's my story. My life was stolen. It was put to, to death, destruction. And then I continued on and found out, here's the Christian life. He came, ever say Jesus? He came that we may have life more abundantly to the overflow, excessive, abundant life. That's why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to have a mediocre, halfway, kind of a foot-in-both-worlds life. He came to free us, right? He came to free us that we live for him. He's the boss, and we get to do it with, with joy, with joy. The Lord's Prayer, also known as the Disciples' Prayer, if you want to write that down, Matthew 6.10, 
your kingdom come. That's what we were taught to, to pray, right? Pray like this, in this way. Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done. Your will. Father, your will. Your will, not mine. I'm not here to do me. I'm here to live for, for you. Do you know how unique that is as a Christian to say, I'm living for him. I'm living for him. It's not about my thing anymore. So here we go. Parents, thinking about your families, your kingdom come, Jesus. Your will be done in my family as it is in heaven. Do you pray like that? How about husbands, wives, in your marriage? God, your kingdom come, your will be done in my marriage as it is in heaven. Students, your kingdom come, your will be done in my studies, in my relationships, in my future planning, just like it is in heaven. Everybody say that's powerful. When we start getting specific about the areas of our life and saying, your kingdom means I enter in with all of my plans and all of my agenda with an open hand, not a tight fist. Have you heard, heard the story of the, how they trap monkeys? If you go to jungles, and I'm assuming it's probably pretty widespread. Any, find your local jungle, if you will, right? Throw a dart on a map, find your local jungle. And if you ask those that are living out in the wild, they, they often will capture, capture monkeys. They're delicious, I hear, all right? So if you're gonna capture a monkey, do you know how fast they are? Those dudes are fast. So you can't outrun them, you gotta outsmart them. So they would take a coconut, they would cut a hole, a hole that's just barely larger than a monkey fist, and all you gotta do is put a, a nut or a fruit or something inside, and then you make sure it's mounted to a tree or, or the ground, and then it's not gonna move, and then you come back a couple days later. And guess what you find? A dead monkey with his arm in the hole of a coconut. Why? Because when he gets hold of that, the only instinct that he has is, I will not let it go. I must have this, even if it kills me. Has that been your story? I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what kind of counselor advice I get. I'm doing it. I'm gonna do it like this. This is what I want. This is what I'm going after. And I think so often God's saying, shh, just let, just let go. Just release the grip because what I have is better. Do you know that you can't put something better in the hand of the monkey when his fist is so dead gripped? Are we any different? I'd rather die than release control or submit my will to God. And who's James talking to? He's talking in the church. He's talking in the church. He's saying, church, there's danger. There's danger. And I want you to, to see that the warning is for your good. So do you, do you see there verse 16 and 17? Everybody say, land the plane. Oh, we're so close. Self-sufficiency, danger number six. It's motivated by wrong definition a wrong definition of sin. Verse 16 and 17, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. You boast in your, you're, you're boasting about your boasting. You are blind to how arrogant you are because you're bragging about the things that you should be embarrassed about. He says this kind of boasting where you're elevating yourself and you're pursuing your own thing, he says it's evil. All such boasting is evil. 
So whoever knows the right thing, this is big. Everybody say, here's the definition. Come on. Here it is. Here's the definition. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. The number of times that I've spent over the years debating with people about, well, is it wrong? Is it wrong? Is it wrong to do that? Huh, preacher? Is it wrong? Are you saying it's sin? Is it sin for me to like go from here to here to cross that little line, that line? Are you saying it's sin? You saying I could do this and that's okay, but then if I cross the line, are you saying that's not okay, but that's okay? Where does it say in the Bible? Where does it say in the Bible? Do you know anybody like that? I want to fight. I just want to fight. I want to bicker and I want to argue and I want to be right. In your heart, you're about to say that thing and you know it's wrong. It's wrong. If you are on your way, to go do that thing, if you are on your phone and you're about to click on that thing, if you are making decisions about the future and deep down, I know that's not the right thing to do. Could we just settle it today? If you know what the right thing to do is and you don't do it for you, it's sin. It's wrong. To go against your conscience, it's wrong. It's wrong. Well, how come other people get to do it? Because other people have a different background, a different past. They have a different conscience. They have different temptations. So do you believe this? Do you believe that there is a group of people, hear me out, do you believe there's a group of people that they have the audacity that they can drink on occasion and that nothing inside of them is saying, it's wrong, it's wrong, you're sinning. They're like, I can have a glass of wine. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It's like, why? because their conscience is wired different than possibly for some of us that have a history. If I even, for some of us, even if we smell something, if we even get close to something, if we even go to a place with people, it's like, it's sin for me to even like be in that place because I know everything inside of me is saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, don't go there. And it's like, how can we all be united as a church if each one of us has a different conscience that is telling us it's wrong and the other person's going, I I can do this to the glory of God. And then we can come together and we have freedoms in certain areas. That's pretty wild, right? So how helpful would it be for us to pay more attention to what God is saying to us about don't do that, don't say that, don't go there. I'm not concerned about what everybody else's freedoms are. I'm not obsessed with whatever. What are, what are they doing? What are they doing? What are they not doing? I'm more concerned about God. I want to be still and I want to hear what you're saying to me. And I want to be obedient to what you're calling me to do. So I don't know what you're doing with your freedom, but God says, use your freedom to love others, to help others, to encourage others, not to drag people down, not to turn into debates, but to, to give and to love. But what is the source of this? The Holy Spirit, our conscience, working inside of us, saying, I know the right thing to do. I need to do it. So I don't know if you've gotten out of a habit of listening to God's voice. Sometimes we go through seasons where it's like, God's shouting at me, screaming. He, like he's, he's, he's pointing things out. In other seasons, we feel... Like, God, I'm not really hearing you. I don't know where you went. I think you kind of checked out. But for us to get back to a place where we say this, I don't want to fall 
and to the danger of defining sin different than God does and justifying and making excuses and God's voice go quiet. As the worship team comes up, I want us to, to think about 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. This is one of the most powerful verses in, in my life to transform the way that I thought about who I was and what my rights are and how I am to live in the world. This is what Paul says. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Here's the phrase. I, I remember reading this almost 20 years ago, and it almost knocked me out of my chair. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. This delusion of self-sovereignty and self-sufficiency, it's a deception. You've been deceived. You've been bought. What does it say? <laughs> you were bought with a price, a great price. You're not your own. You're paid for in blood. Do you believe that? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been paid for. You've been bought. You're free. Free not to do your own thing, but free to do the will of the Father who loves you and is generous and knows all things and has all power.